This week's episode is brought to you by Dana Sager, Zenevra, BB Susalu, and Sumac. Thank you, Dana Sager, Zenevra, BB Susalu, and Sumac. It's with the beneficent support of listeners just like you that keeps the generators running power to our complex array of transmission towers beaming a lullaby of drums and the thin, monotonous piping of flutes to the archdemon inside Dick Cheney's pineal gland, preventing his final transformation into a meat portal for the tentacle lords from the ninth dimension. If you'd like to prevent the third dimensional apocalypse or just hear the second half of this show, please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit, where your monthly donation of just five bucks gets you not just this show, but the second half of all our shows in their full uncensored format. But that's not all. I'll send you a five by five vinyl sticker of our cover art at no additional cost and the secret keys to our discord server where the buffalo roam and the antelope play. If you're happy with the free show and still want to help out, just give us a like, share, review, or subscribe because it helps us incredibly. On this week's show, we discuss the son of morning himself, Lucifer. While exploring the popular mythology of Lucifer, we investigate his role in the Bible and the origins of the words used to arrive at the translation of his name, giving us a number of solid clues to clarify the much intuited and controversial relationship between Lucifer, Jesus Christ, and the planet Venus. In the extended show, we repel further down the rabbit hole and discuss the Greek Prometheus, but especially his parents, the sigil of Lucifer, what it has to do with human vision, the pineal gland, pine cones, and peacocks. Thank you, and enjoy the show. So if fallen angels gave us the ability to make weapons, which ultimately led to guns and technology and video games, and are video games really of the devil? Yes, because John Carmack is the Dark Lord. (laughs) Hail John Carmack! Hello everybody, and welcome to The Whole Rabbit, where we don't just point at things we find aesthetically or symbolically provocative, only to proclaim they are telltale signs of Luciferianism by vaguely implying a prolific expertise in such matters while deferring our audience to an a priori sense of paranoia to confirm our assertions. Nay, we actually tell you about what's in the Bible, what it has to do with the planet Venus, ancient mythology, and a team of babysitter angels who were sent permanently to horny jail because this week we're discussing Lucifer, son of the morning. I'm your host, Hack Rabbit, also known as Luke Madrid. Marisama is missing in action this week, but she'll be back, and I am joined by co-hosts, the mighty mandibles of Memnock, Malachor 5. Mr. Socko is ready for the mandible claw. And her Luciferic lady, Heka Astra. Hello! We hope Mari is thrilled and fulfilled as she's traipsing about France and England in the countrysides. Looking at torture dungeons. Maybe bones? So many bones. Dogs like bones. Corgis like bones. Ask George Clinton. We talk a lot about Lucifer on this show. It comes up quite a bit. People are interested in Lucifer, but we've never done a proper episode just about Lucifer. I think there's a lot of people who... I respect magically that are very quick to say like, oh yeah, that Lucifer stuff is just like a mistranslation. It's just some BS made up stuff. And then there's a lot of people who I've spoken to that are like, I've experienced Lucifer. Like, yeah, I do demon magic and stuff. Like, I'm cool with that dude. So he's definitely still like a relevant topic today for magicians, philosophers even. 
there's so much going on with him that I think a lot of people just overlook. I think we're all pretty stoked for this topic. I've always had an intense personal interest in Lucifer, and I've never settled for just one answer. So I hope what we've compiled here today satisfies the audience as much as it does me. The story of Lucifer is one we as a culture take for granted. Without quoting the Bible or even adhering themselves to a particular religion, most people are familiar with the mythology of Lucifer. Judging by its popular conception, one might at first be tempted to believe there's a book in the Bible which gives the official story of Lucifer's favored status with God, his growing jealousy, vanity, and subsequent rebellion. Certainly, there must be a chapter about Lucifer's forced expulsion at the hands of Archangel Michael along with a third of the angels in heaven who followed him, who, in their spite, established the infernal domain of Heck, where unrepentant sin enemies, and rejects of heaven will dwell forever between unsuccessful attempts at corrupting God's good work, tormenting the faithful, and rebooting franchises on Netflix. But there's not. While it's possible to begin vivisecting the myth of Lucifer, ruthlessly exposing its constituent parts as little else than biblical fanfiction, we would miss out on the ancient threads of truth, which hold the tapestry of the vulgar myth firmly together. So... Biblical fan fiction like Paradise Lost by John Milton, that's not canon, but people treat it like it is. All the time. People are pretty sure Paradise Lost is a book of the Bible. Or that the imagery of hell having nine rings is legit. Kind of not. It's from Dante's Inferno originally. Which is also a work of fiction. That's commonly accepted as canon. I love that. In Dante's Inferno, all the wise people and good people from before Christ get to hang out in like the least shitty ring of hell, but that's the best they get. So there's this interesting line from John 319 that says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Are there two ways to look at this? Have we rejected Christ as we might first assume, or have we rejected Lucifer because we don't understand? Is there a more intimate connection between Christ and Lucifer than is first assumed? Right. And it, that makes a lot more sense when we get into the etymology of Lucifer's name, but there is a motif throughout time of us rejecting this Christ mentality, or on the other hand, the Luciferic wisdom from the pagan world. Which, when we look to the world of art, we see both ideals blended together in a way that we might even say is sacrilegious. Because Lucifer never used to be portrayed as this red devil with horns and stuff. Like, the earliest depiction of Lucifer in art is actually pretty tame. He's just uh, an angel robed in blue next to Christ. On the other side, it's Michael robed in red. This brings us to the twin Lucifers of Liege, 60 miles east of Brussels in the French-speaking part of Belgium. Not far from the borders of Germany and the Netherlands stands St. Paul's Cathedral of Liege, bedecked with ornate marble statuary, woodwork, and stained glass. The Cathedral of Liege houses one of the most recognizable and iconic depictions of Lucifer in the world, Le Génie du Mans, the Genius of Evil. Finished in 1848, the Genius of Evil was sculpted by Guillaume Gifs and depicts a classically beautiful young man in neoclassical and romantic style, joined with techniques of realism. The result is a vibrantly life like an emotive figure. Lucifer is perched atop a rock, wrapped in bat-like wings, naked unto the waist, clutching his head in anguished resentment over a broken scepter, stripped of crown, and a bitten apple. 
Lucifer's nape-length hair hides a pair of horns, not unlike the ones seen in Moses' statues, and he's shackled around the ankle. Upon closer inspection, he's chained to the rock upon which he sits. The genius of evil is positioned at the base of a pulpit, where two spiral stairs meet around the back. But this has not always been the case. Guillaume Gibbs was actually commissioned to sculpt this statue to replace the one created by his brother, which was rejected by the cathedral administration, stating, This devil is too sublime. This devil is too sublime. Younger brother, Josef Gibbs, had completed his statue, Leong Dumont, the Angel of Evil, in 1842, and had it installed the following year in the cathedral where it saw considerable controversy. The local press accusing the statue of distracting the, quote, pretty penitent girls who ought to have been listening to sermon. While this might seem pious at first, Josef Gies never stopped receiving praise for his sculpture because it was so provocative with numerous commissions for its replication on behalf of Belgian aristocracy. People loved it. They're both pretty great both of these statues yeah looking at Genet Dumas uh, the legs I really look the knee area it's got all these muscles and you can see the bone structure it's really well done the first one Lange Dumas it has this like innocence and seductiveness to it it's they're both brilliant I think that's what they had a problem with it was a little too good the second statue makes like a better dating profile picture but I like the first one. Yeah, the first one has a snake. I've heard Le Genie de Mal described as being the hotter of the two, just from his pose. Well, he's less boyish. Yeah, he's got his arm raised. He's like kind of like slicking his hair back, it looks like almost. And you can see like his armpit and like some more musculature coming out from his backside. It is the sexier one. More muscles. The physical description of the Angel of Evil from Wikipedia is one of those rare cases where the article is so well written I'm not going to try improving on it. Other than the Vespertilianid wings, the fallen angel of Josef Giefs takes on completely human form, made manifest by its artistic near nudity. A languid scarf skims the groin, the hips are bared, and the open thighs form an avenue that leads to shadow. The serpentine curve of waist and hip is given compositional play in relation to the wing arcs. The torso is fit but youthful, smooth and graceful, almost androgynous. The angel's expression has been described as serious, somber, even fierce, and the cast-down gaze directs the viewer's eye along the body and thighs to the parted knees. The most obvious satanic element, in addition to the wings, is the snake uncoiling across the base of the rock. L'Ange du Mal has been called one of the most disturbing works of its time. Yosef's sculpture are striking for their perfect finish and grace, their elegant, even poetic line, but while exhibiting these qualities in abundance. L'Ange du Mal is exceptional within the artist's body of work for its subject matter. It compellingly illustrates the Romantic era's attraction to darkness and the abyss, and the rehabilitation of the rebellious fallen angel. The chiropteral wings, far from inspiring revulsion, form a frame that enhances the beauty of a youthful body. That is a very well-written article. By reading into their posture, you can see that the second one is remorseful. His fierceness is paired with regret, where the first one's fierceness is paired with sensuousness. Yeah, the Genie du Mal's uh, body language suggests that somebody just gave him some very awful news and he doesn't know what he's going to do next. He looks like he's stuck. The first one kind of looks like golded, but not remorseful. Like maybe he's still got the upper hand. To me, it looks a little mischievous, like a child sitting on the 
edge of a cliff watching the town burn from above. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like when a kid gets in trouble compared to the Genie de Mal, where it's like an adult that got in trouble. The reactions. I don't think it would be wrong to say that the Bible and Abrahamic religion in general reappropriates, reimagines older, time-honored motifs and mythologies into its own story. After all, the rejection of Lucifer in our story of Belgian statuary is not dissimilar to the treatment of Lucifer by the church in presenting its theological worldview. Like Joseph Geef's statue, the original Lucifer was an archetypally beautiful and sublime figure, which required the application of the monstrous and grotesque to stand in contrast to a new sexless male god of love and light. Hear the Bible! If we trace the origin of the word Lucifer through the evolving versions of the Bible, we find different associations and meanings which compound over time. Looking for Lucifer in a modern Bible, we find him mentioned most prominently in Isaiah 14:12 in the King James translation. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? This use of the word Lucifer originates in the Latin Vulgate of the 4th century and is used to translate the Greek term Hesphoros, which was translated from the Hebrew Hillel ben Shahar. This is where things get interesting. Will each one may be most appropriately understood as an epithet in this context, applied specifically to the historical Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, each one also has an indirect theological association with some unity between them. Anytime Lucifer is used in Latin, it usually refers to the planet Venus, in the same way that Hermes refers to the planet Mercury. Lucifer means light bearer. Thus, Lucifer is not really a name, but an epithet, one commonly associated with Venus. This is also true of the word that was translated from Greek, Eosphros. Eosphoros, like Lucifer, is a name which also means light bearer, and is a descriptor for the planet Venus who, when personified as a god, was a close relative to another deity we just discussed at length in a recent episode, Hecate. Hecate's dad, Perseus, the destroyer, had a brother named Astrius, a star god who fathered Eosphoros through Eos, goddess of the dawn. This makes Eosphoros a literal son of the dawn. He also had a twin named Hesperus, which also corresponded to Venus, but as an evening star. Knowing this, Heosphoros was a pretty straightforward translation of a Hebrew phrase with remarkably similar connotations. Eosphoros was translated from the Hebrew Hillel ben Shahar, or shining one of the dawn. Hebrew Shahar is dawn, but also the Ugarit word for the god of the dawn, a child of El with a twin named Shalim, god of the dusk. As you might expect, Venus in the morning represented Shahar, and in the evening represented Shalim, both the twin children of El, the same deity who would become Yahweh. So, deep in the roots of Semitic culture, we find Venus representing the Son of God. This makes Christ's usage of the term in Revelations 22.16 a bit easier to understand. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Is this the light we've rejected? A combination of Christ and perhaps Lucifer, his angel? It's kind of fun because I think in the Greek translation of the Bible, it actually does say Lucifer. Like it does actually say, I am Lucifer, which confuses people because Christ saying I am Lucifer is, well, confusing. Understandably, when those folks are talking about planets, they use the same terminology though. Like, oh, there's Lucifer. So really the Lucifer archetype invoked in the Bible doesn't have evil origins. It has origins as the son of El. It's like the complete opposite. And we're talking about the name Lucifer in the Bible, not Satan. Correct. The epithet 
Morningstar makes sense because Venus has captured the human imagination for aeons. It is arguably the most beautiful object in the sky. It was also the first planet that was tracked by ancient cultures. Interesting. If we're going to be talking about the celestial body that is the planet Venus, we should brush up on and maybe consider a few of the interesting facts about the planet that relate to what we're talking about. So Venus is the na- Venus is the brightest natural object in the sky, aside from the sun and the moon, which is why it was the first planet to be tracked right there. And mm. it spins. That makes sense, right? Yeah. And it spins retrograde on its axis. It's entirely upside down. It has temperatures across the entire surface, keeping at a fairly steady 461 degrees Celsius. So this means that not only is it hot enough to melt lead, but also that Venus is hotter than Mercury, even though it's further from the sun than Mercury is. I think it's also interesting to note that the atmosphere of Venus is also highly abundant in sulfur dioxide, which seems to become reduced in higher altitudes. It's also what gives the color to Venus. So sulfur dioxide is a gaseous compound, which can result from the burning of the element sulfur. If you're familiar with old-timey terms, sulfur is also known as brimstone, and that's the renowned smell of hell the fire and brimstone smell. So sulfur dioxide, it smells like a match that's just been struck. It's corrosive, highly toxic, and exposure to it can be fatal. Even short-term exposure can cause lifelong respiratory conditions. So I think this is the vitriolic association that we get with the planet Venus. You know, spacecraft don't like it either. It's super corrosive, yeah. Oh yes, we have landed the ship on the surface of Venus. Oh, it is melting, it is melted, it is gone now. Thank you everybody, you can go home. (laughs) And, you know, brimstone or sulfur, it's yellow in color. And that's where we get the yellow color association of Venus as well. And I just wanted to pause to say that brimstone is still used as a kind of protective substance in spiritual practices. You can carry it around with you. You can burn a small amount on a piece of charcoal. It's used for uncrossing, banishing, reversing hexes. So even though it has this association with hell, it is also used for exorcisms. I think it's awesome that Venus's orbit in relation to Earth's orbit, they meet at 72 degrees in five different points in their orbit, making a pentagram. And pentagrams are used to ward off spirits or to banish if you want them to. And it's oftentimes associated with Satanism or a symbol close to Lucifer. But a a secret of the pentagram is that the word Yeheshua is symbolic of you know the five elements together and that's of course jesus christ again it's kind of funny because just like the brimstone it kind of depends on how you look at it and what you're going to associate it with are you going to associate it with hell or are you going to associate it with exorcism there's kind of two ways to look at the same energy well if christ says he's the morning star and the Morningstar and Earth link up five times at 72 degrees of their orbit. That's the five wounds of Christ. Duh. So Venus sets in the west and rises in the east. When Venus is in retrograde, the planet disappears from the evening sky for seven days before its inferior conjunction with the sun. This seven-day duration of Venus's disappearance is followed by another seven days before Venus rises again in the morning. This is what many ancient myths regarded as Venus's descent or ascent 
from the underworld. This also explains some of the use of the number seven, which is its number association in the Kabbalah. So one such myth regarding the descent of Venus was the Sumerian tale of Inanna's descent into the underworld. Venus, as both the morning star and the evening star, is due to the intermittent way in which Venus appears in our skies. Many ancient cultures seemed to view them as being separate celestial bodies. However, there is evidence to show that the ancient Sumerians and Egyptians were well aware that the evening star and morning star were both Venus. And thus we also have this mythologized version of astronomical events repeated in the fall of Lucifer from heaven in Christianity. Eosphoros is Hesperus as they say. Meaning the morning star is the evening star. Yes. So on the subject of the Venusian dual nature, Pliny the Elder wrote the following. Below the sun revolves a very large star named Venus, which varies its course alternately and whose alternative names in themselves indicate its rivalry with the sun and moon. When in advance and rising before dawn, it receives the name of Lucifer as being another sun and bringing the dawn. Whereas when it shines after sunset, it is named Vesper as prolonging the daylight or as being a deputy for the moon. This property of Venus was first discovered by Pythagoras of Samos about the 42nd Olympiad, 142 years after the foundation of Rome. That's 612 BC, so a long time ago. Further, it surpasses all the other stars in magnitude and is so brilliant that alone among stars it casts a shadow by its rays. Consequently, there is a great competition to give it a name, some having called it Juno, others Isis, others the mother of the gods. Its influence is the cause of the birth of all things upon earth. At both of its risings, it scatters a genital dew. <laughs> <laughs> with which it not only fills the conceptive organs of the earth, but also stimulates those of all animals. It completes the circuit of the zodiac every 348 days, and according to Timaeus, is never more than 46 degrees distant from the sun. I like how it scatters a genital dew. That's very poetic. I didn't know Venus scattered genital dew. Drip, 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 drip. It does have a tail, though. Throws down Timaeus's name. Timaeus knows everything. That's right. This whole show is just explaining the Timaeus from different angles. Pliny the Elder also described Lucifer as being bright white and Vesper or Wesper as glaring, which means reflecting light. So derived from the Mesopotamian area of Babylon is the Cyprian Venus, known to be identical to the Roman goddess Venus and the Greek Aphrodite. The goddess Ishtar, worshipped by the ancient Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians, embodied the divine feminine concepts of fertility, love, and sometimes war. Ishtar is also known to have had associations to the planet Venus. Ishtar's Sumerian equivalent is Inanna, who bore the epithet Queen of Heaven. Many of the ancient myths describe Inanna as impulsive or somewhat reckless. Even though she had a strong association with love and sex, Inanna was rarely ever regarded as a mother deity. In fact, sometimes even her gender was a bit androgynous. So this may be due in part to her role as a war deity, since as a feminine deity, it's understood that she would have taken on a masculine role. Yet another equivalent can 
can be found in the Western Semitic Canaanite Phoenician goddess Astarte. The Hebrews referred to Astarte as Ashtoreth, where they deliberately distorted her name to imply abomination. Which brings us to the Hebrew Bible. The city of Babylon is referred to as Babel. The original name Babylim is widely understood to have meant gate of the gods. Ishtar was a prominent goddess of the Babylonians, along with Inanna and Astarte. They were associated very strongly by the Hebrews with idolatry and abominable acts. And it is this exact archetype that is directly repurposed in the book of Revelations as the whore of Babylon, an abominable apocalyptic manifestation of them as one being. Conveniently, this makes nearly all female deities synonymous with evil, and by extension, women too. Even still, this would not prevent Christianity from appropriating popular symbolism sacred to the goddesses like Eos. As we discussed earlier, Eos is the personification of the dawn and has a number of sons who, besides the Venus twins, include Memnon a great king of Ethiopia who defended Troy during the Trojan War and was slain during a challenge with Achilles who put a spear through his chest. Sounds familiar. It does. Eos was popularly depicted mournfully holding her dead son, crying in petition and total despair to the gods, which through the Virgin Mary and crucified Christ would become a time-honored motif in Christianity as well. It is most famously depicted in Michelangelo's Pieta, right down to the spear wound in the chest. See this little picture I have in the notes? This is the Pieta? This is what inspired the Pieta. Eos holding her son, Memnon, being like, Zeus, bring him back! And Zeus is like, all right, I'll make him stars. It's what I do every time somebody asks. It's like Oprah, like, you get to be a star and you get to be a star. In Revelation 12, the imagery traditionally associated with Eos, goddess of the dawn, appears along with the birth of her son, who is presented as a ruler and challenger of God. So... In case you're wondering if the Hindus have Luciferian symbolism in their culture, it's actually prominent through like many of their gods. But the goddess of the dawn, I'm calling her, you know, the Vedic mommy of Lucifer is Ushas. And that's the equivalent of Eos. And across the Indo-European pantheons, you do end up with the possible origins of the word East in in various, you know, cognates of their names across the languages of these people. Because that's where the sun comes up. Right. The dawn. So to go on to Revelations chapter 12, lines 1 through 9. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up into God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared for God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was a war in heaven. Mikael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Here the archetypal pairing of the goddess of the dawn and her son is reimagined as strictly aligned with evil and against God. This echoes the use of Lucifer 
Lucifer earlier in Isaiah, pairing it with the glory and subsequent fall of God's enemies. Here in Revelations, though, we see a motif of angels falling from heaven, which helps it become conflated with other characters from the apocryphal book of Enoch, which also sees Michael fighting rebellious no-good angels. This is, in my opinion, the most fun of the apocryphal books. From what I understand, the book of Enoch is still canon to some groups of Christians in Ethiopia. And it's interesting that you kind of have to like patch together all the stories to make it what we think of it as because they're kind of disparate and like they repeat themes and it doesn't quite like a game of telephone a little bit. Yeah, it's a mashup little bits here and there. As such, Lucifer is not in the Book of Enoch, but Shemjaza and Azazel are. Originally, these angels belong to a group referred to as the Grigori, or the Watchers, who were tasked with watching humans, but they watched a little too closely and decided human women were desirable. Go figure. It's then that Shemjaza suggested they defect en masse and start procreating with women. Enoch 6, 3-5 says, And Shemjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and all bind ourselves by mutual curses, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Do the things. <laughs> to do the thing. How could you ever cut that out of the Bible? <laughs> Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual curses upon it. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> That's uh, blood in, blood out right there. In the book of Enoch, it describes Semyaza as the prominent leader of the rebellious watchers. It does also, however, describe multiple leaders or chiefs. And one of these leaders is Azazel. While each one of the watchers taught mankind various things, it was Azazel that was credited with teaching blacksmithing, the arts of war, as well as the art of cosmetics, body ornamentation, deception, witchcraft. So Mikael, Uriel, Raphael and Gabriel, seeing all of the crazy shit going down, they call out to the Lord, saying, Thou seest what Azazel hath done, who hath taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets which were preserved in heaven, which men were striving to learn, and Shemjaza, to whom thou hast given authority to bear rule over his associates? As far as what the Watchers taught the humans, though, Shemjaza was only credited with teaching enchantments and root cuttings. It's when Azazel shared what he knew that things really got out of hand. In the book of Enoch, chapter 8, it says, And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the islands and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness and they committed fornication and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. Shemjaza taught enchantment and root cuttings. Armoros, the resolving of enchantments. Barakajal taught astrology. Kokabel, the constellations. Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds. Arakil, the signs of the earth. Shamziel, the signs of the sun. And Sariel, the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried and their cries went up to heaven. This reminds me a lot of Sauron. He made magical rings and fucked up the whole world in Lord of the Rings. And he's like the top bad guy. At least in the third age, but that's nerd stuff. Definitely. So the book of Enoch goes on to say in chapter 10, And again the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot and cast him into the darkness and make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael. 
and cast him therein, and place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him abide there forever, and cover his face, that he may not see light. And on the day of the great judgment he shall be cast into the fire, and heal the earth which the angels have corrupted, and proclaim the healing of the earth, that they may heal the plague, and that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed, and have taught their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel, to him ascribe all sin. So you really got to throw the one ring into Mount Doom, huh? Dude, Azazel taught them all the good shit that got them in trouble. Like that was the big no-no stuff. It's interesting that they got in so much trouble that they're like, okay, anything that just happens from now on, it's Azazel's fault. He did it. To him ascribe all sin. So not Lucifer, but Azazel. Now, if Azazel is a Lucifer, a revealer of wisdom, then I could, you see how they kind of weaves all together? Like you could kind of like, you can make it match up in your eyesight sort of and get the illusion, you know? Here's kind of the cool thing about this is that all of the watchers were revealers of wisdom in that sense. But some of this knowledge was considered evil and some of it was not really. It seems like it's the stuff that Azazel taught that was like, really, you should not have taught that. So Azazel made metal music? Is that why we get all the hate? I mean, so if you look at like what the other angels taught, what the other watchers taught, knowledge of the clouds that's probably not really that sinful compared to like teaching warfare you know well this is how you pull a guy's butthole out he'll tell you anything <laughs> like apparently yahweh was so pissed at azazel for what he did that he had him bound hand and foot before having the archangel raphael tuck him away chained to some rocks which is much like the story of prometheus but He's not the only one that got punished, obviously. And Semyaza didn't get away without being punished as well. And the Lord said unto Michael, Go bind Semyaza and his associates who have united themselves with women so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when the sons have slain one another and they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them fast for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of their judgment and of their constant till the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire and to the torment and the prison which they shall be confined forever. And whosoever shall be condemned and destroyed will from thenceforth be bound together with them to the end of all generations. So if you're wondering about Azazel, he's also featured in the extra canonical Palestinian text, the Apocalypse of Abraham. And it's in this text that he's given associations with unclean birds, the serpent, and embodying both ungodliness and the fire of hell itself. The Apocalypse of Abraham states, Be thou the burning coal of the furnace of earth. So again, the reason why we're talking about Semyaza and Azazel is because not once does it mention in the Book of Enoch the name Lucifer. And the actual details of the story of the fall isn't found in the canonical Bible. I just want to say to the etymological roots of the word apocalypse simply means unveiling, but almost every time it's used, it's about like unveiling the end of the world of some sorts. So it is kind of spooky, but it doesn't literally mean that. But unveiling is a word that's related to light bearing because you're opening the way for perception. Yeah, I think you make a good point there, like curtains, you know, closing the blinds or putting a veil over something. You're interacting with light directly, blocking it or allowing it in. Okay, you mentioned metal music earlier. I can think of an example in metal music 
where this motif of Shemyaza's fallen angels giving mankind the power of war. Black Sabbath's War Pigs. Which is actually a song that was inspired by reading Pliny the Elder explaining how they would hang pigs against the Carthaginians when they used the elephants. They were afraid of the squealing of the pigs, so they'd turn around. Uh, that's how the Romans got the upper hand. But it's also about like warmongering rich people that are pigs in the modern world, funding wars all the time. And so even in popular mythology there, it carries over that the devil is there to teach people how to make war on each other and that God doesn't like it. Yeah, Ozzy used a peace sign. That's an occult symbol. And we got, you know, things like uh, that scene in A Nightmare Before Christmas with Jack Skellington getting shot out of the sky by the army kind of the same idea this genius from the underworld like getting shot down and he falls into a book which is what the lucifer archetype is guilty of is the giving of knowledge and it's held by an angel this book in the cemetery and, and he kind of regains his crown symbolically because he realizes that he's the pumpkin king not santa claus and he should just like kind of follow his true will and he's kind of reborn through that process the king dies and he is reborn and he goes to reestablish a new era of order against chaos who's personified by the boogie the man throws dice he's all about chance chaos he's killing santa claus too <laughs> we yeah we still have lucifer in our media current they're blasting us with this all the time and i don't mean that in a negative way at all either there's a little bit of this in the pixar films anybody that wally ends up touching they eventually stop following their directive he passes on a spark of awareness uh, free will choice to the robots that he encounters. I actually really like that movie a lot. What's this lady's name? Eve. Eve. Doctor Who is a bit of a fallen angel who possesses technology that humankind ought not to mess with. He's also going against the grain of his race or his alien species by championing humanity, which is not something they're really supposed to do. In regards to Doctor Who, he does get a little bit of flack for taking human companions. Yeah, he's known to take on different faces and have slightly different personalities. And even though he's been a savior everywhere he goes, whenever he shows up, people associate him with evil. They think he's the devil. And now that I think of it, it makes sense that he would get in trouble cavorting with mortal women because, huh, well, that's how this whole problem got started, at least according to the Book of Enoch. That's pretty funny. <laughs> He's kind of like a, a Nephilim or a fallen angel that's just like, oh, human girl, you're so hot. Yeah, basically. And then, like Jesus, he's always being sacrificed to save humanity. And it's no wonder we get bombarded with it because if it is the more heroic rock star version of Jesus Christ, then of course we would want Lucifer. And Christ is conceptualized as a revealer of good news, as you mentioned earlier, Malachor. But most specifically, he uplifts humans on humanity's terms, overriding the superciliousness of the Old Testament. We often hear the term Christ consciousness, which is related to enlightenment. And as we discussed, the bringing of wisdom, light or enlightenment to humanity and the new dawn, it, I think it paints a very clear connection between Lucifer and Christ consciousness. What makes that compelling is that Christ is announcing a new kingdom. He's announcing a new age, just like Venus is announcing the coming of the sun. Nighttime for the ancients was a pretty scary time. I mean, every night they 
surely looked forward to the rising of the sun, which would bring safety. And Venus as the morning star is the last of the bright celestial bodies to disappear from the sky, which heralds the new dawn. So to the ancients, Venus symbolized hope and enlightenment. When Christ came to Earth, his followers gained the power of the tongues of flame, which is the ability to translate the gospel into any language on Earth, just spontaneously by being inspired by the Spirit, which itself is Promethean. Further still, Christ tells his followers that they're going to surpass him. What Christ has given them is something that will grow like fire and empower the people that believe in his message. He says, Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And Christ ends up representing this symbol of hope through the Roman oppression at the time. And it was through Jesus that, you know, his followers will find freedom from that. And it's interesting that he's a prophesized being to come. And it's almost like there's this search for this hidden adversary capability to whatever oppressive forces going on in the world. That in itself is also like Lucifer being an adversary. It's interesting consider it's interesting to consider that the god kings of Rome, as they thought of themselves, were also symbolized by the eagle, which tortured the Promethean Christ to death. So we could be saved. So we'd be taken care of. I think in relation to Lucifer as the adversary, you know, as the serpent that's beckoning for Eve to eat the apple or the fruit, rather, from the tree. It reminds me a lot of in the Gospel of Thomas, I believe Jesus says, it's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of it that will defile you. To me, it kind of nullifies this whole idea of original sin. And it's basically like, here's this knowledge that's being given to you. And it's not the knowledge itself that makes you evil that you take into yourself. It's what you do with it. Well, this is enough to see how a story of Lucifer developed into a fully fleshed out concept in Christianity. Even if it just slithers quietly below the surface, what about its ancient roots? If Lucifer and the fallen angels are real to some extent, where do we find them in ancient mythology? What does Lucifer have to do with our third eye? Some of the things we found while digging even surprised us. If you'd like to hear the rest of our Lucifer episode, or the entirety of our entire library and its extended uncut edition, please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit where you can get all that a five by five vinyl sticker of our cover art and the secret keys to our discord server for just five bucks thank you everybody eat carrots and shoot lasers pew 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 pew